Good morning, everybody. And that's our theme for our series through Luke. Oh, look. Yeah, Kent actually has a Superman undershirt on today in support. He's like, look at that, baby. So anyway, and the reason that we're doing that, if, if this is your first time or you're new here, we, we try to do something that tells you to quit talking and sit down, but that's not really why. We try to pick a theme and then our theme is really from the book of Luke. It's to seek and to save. And we kind of use the Superman graphic to kind of communicate that. And, um, you know, the, the Luke 19, which we looked at last week, it's the idea of uh, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's why Luke was writing this gospel. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one is written about the same guy, Jesus, a biography, but different perspectives. Just like you would go to a library and see multiple biographies on Thomas Jefferson, but they would be from different perspectives. They'd be true, but just taking a different approach to the facts and things that happened in his life to prove that he existed and to prove what he did and why he did it. And so... And the book of Luke talks about the theme is this idea that Jesus is the son of man. He's the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He's the one that has been, that God has been saying for all of history would come to save people because we can't save our, ourselves. And remember, that's what separates Christianity from all other world religions. All other world religions say you can save yourself if you're just good enough. If you do enough, if you follow the laws, if... Christianity and ancient Judaism are the only two religions that say God judges the heart. You can do all the actions perfectly, which you can't. You can pretend like you do, but if your heart is not his, if you've not surrendered to a relationship with him, he knows. And there's no getting around that. There's no works. And it's only him who can grant us salvation, grant us grace, and grant us the relationship we long for. And that's exactly what Luke is saying. He's like, the son of man, Jesus, came because he recognizes that we needed to be sought out, that we needed to be saved, that we were lost even if we don't see any of those things. And each week we take a question. This week, the question we're going to see in this passage is, who gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority? Think of an area of your life where you have authority. And you say, well, I don't have any authority. Yeah, you do. You, you, have, you have authority. If you're a kid, you have authority and dominion over your room right? You have a responsibility to it. It's yours. It's been given to you. You've been entrusted with it. And then mom and dad have to come in and remind you of the authority you've been granted under their roof, just like God has to come and remind us of the authority we've been granted under his roof, creation, the world. Maybe you have a position at work where people are under you. Maybe you have just the authority to when you see things that shouldn't be happening, you speak to those things because you don't want to see people get hurt if you're a mom, if you're a dad. All of us, if you're a sibling, you have people older, young, all of us live by authority structures. When you get in the car today, you are going to drive by authority. And if you don't, the authority will remind you that you're under their permission and roof to have a license and drive that automobile. And they will remind you that you're under their authority, Right? If you think, I've said this before, if you think you own your home, don't pay your taxes and see how long you own your home. The government allows you to own your home. They're nice enough to do that for us. Like, we're, the whole world is structured under this. And what we see in this passage, if you remember last week, Jesus has come into Jerusalem. This is his last time 
to visit this city, to, to come into the city. He, he made the triumphal entry. If you remember, he got a donkey and they put robes on it and they were crying out Hosanna to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And as he's going into Jerusalem, he's weeping. It's supposed to be a moment of celebration and beauty and the king is coming, the savior's coming. And Jesus is crying because he knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows that they're going to kill him. He knows that they're going to turn their back on him. He knows that no one, hardly anyone is going to stand for him. And he's broken over it. And as in this moment, he goes into Jerusalem. Now let me ask you. You have all the authority. Jesus is God. He had all the authority in the world to stop all of this at any moment. Let me ask you. If you had all the authority in the world and you know you knew that you only had a week to live, what would you do? Because the rest of the story we're getting ready to see is the image of what our Savior did when he knew he only had a week left. He's entering Jerusalem for the days leading up to Passover. He's teaching, he's loving people. He's worshiping every day in the temple, seeking his father and trying to get people to see his father. He's not going to the beaches of Greece to have a last hurrah. <laughs> He's not going to the Mediterranean to go sailing with his friends. Jesus knows this is the end. He knows he has all authority and he is going, you ready for this? He is going to place himself under the authority of sin on our behalf. He is going to say, my father is a judge, the law is good, we deserve death for how rebellious we are, and as your savior, I'm going to put myself under that so that you can be brought out from underneath it. See, if we only had a week to live and we had all authority, we'd be doing all kinds of great stuff, right? I'm going to do this, and I'm going to tell him to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to We see Jesus just simply, simply laying down his life. Calling people to the word of God. Calling people to the truth of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you remember, he comes in weeping, but the next thing he does, which is why this gets kind of hairy here in this passage, is in Luke 19.45, it says, you can follow along on your phones, don't forget if you have a live page. He went into the temple complex and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be called will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple complex. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to destroy him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated, captivated by what they heard. Have you ever been captivated by God and his word? I mean, I mean truly captivated. Like, you're reading the word and you're just in awe of it. It causes you to just... Wow, and you just want to read more and listen more, and you're just, it's like, oh, I got to go to work. I can't, oh, I got to get back to this when I get home. I, that's how we're supposed to love God's word. But most of us, it's just a box to check, if we even read it. And it's the beautiful gift God has given us to know him. And here he lays it out, and Jesus is teaching every day in the temple complex he knows he has a week left. He knows he has all authority and he can make people do whatever he wants. And he's just trying to, by faith, convince them, show them the beauty of God, give them an opportunity to repent, another opportunity to repent, and another opportunity to repent. We don't see him coming in with authority. 
being a jerk. Now, does he throw the temple people out of the temple? Yeah, and that's why they get mad. See, he throws the temple tables over, and then he keeps coming back to the temple. That's problematic. Because they had an entire economic system set up on temple selling. Just like we have an entire Christian subculture set up on selling Christian stuff. Right? We used to have bookstores everywhere. You walk in and there's just all this Christian stuff to buy. Now they can't keep them open. So we buy it online. <laughs> and here Jesus is and he's like, look, this is, we're supposed to be a people of prayer. Do you know what prayer is? Prayer is telling God how great he is. And in light of how great he is, reminding him who we are. That's it. Prayer's pretty simple. It's not going to God with all our wants. It's not telling him what he should do and, hey, I want this and will you give me that. It's going to him and saying, hey, God, I love you. It's great to talk to you. It's wonderful. Man, I'm just so grateful I have another breath today. I'm just, thanks. Like, ah, this is awesome. And, oh, and by the way, like, there's some things going on in people's lives and in my life. And I, I know you know it, but I just want you to know that I know it. And I'm trying to figure out how to deal with it. And if you could help me, if you could tell me how I'm supposed to help them, I, I'd really appreciate it. That's prayer. It's supposed to be from a heart of gratitude, of a confident relationship, knowing God has forgiven us because of what Jesus is about ready to do here. It's supposed to be an awe, a reverence, a respect. But unfortunately, we've not been talk, taught in our culture to talk to anybody that way today. We don't know how to talk to people anymore. It's always about getting the zinger in, getting our word out. I got something to tell you. You better listen up. It's never about considering the authority you're talking to and approaching it properly. Unless we know it's going to cost us a lot. Then we'll butter up the boss and we'll approach him real careful. See, Jesus is getting ready to just get killed over what he's going to teach. What we're going to read on these pages for the next couple of weeks is going to lead the baby in a manger to be nailed to a cross and to be bled out on our behalf. They are going to kill him for what he's getting ready to teach. And the first thing they do is they question him. Look at what they say. They look. They say one day he was teaching the people in the temple complex and proclaiming the good news. He's proclaiming good news. Hey, good news. You're cursed. You're going to die. You're going to spend eternity separated from God. Your life and the life around you is a mess. Good news. There's a savior. There's a way out. There's everlasting life. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. That's the good news. It's the whole story, not just the part we like. And then he says, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who is it who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are coming in here, throwing over tables, and then coming back to make sure that our sellers, that we get taxes from, and that we've approved that they could come into the temple to sell, how dare you stand up? I mean, remember, when he says, my house should be called a house of prayer, Jesus quotes scripture. He says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. These guys knew what was written. They didn't care anymore. I don't care what God's word has to say. I've already made up my mind. It's profitable for me. It works for the nation because they can all come in. They don't have to raise lambs anymore. They don't have to sacrifice. They just bring some money, buy a lamb, sacrifice it, move on. Hey, I did my good thing. Now I get on with my life. That's the way our culture works today. Just come to church, get my fill in, go with, do my life. Like God's just so happy with me. 
And Jesus is like, look, this has got to stop. This is not how this was ever supposed to work. And they get it. They get that he is taking authority in the temple. And they're looking at him and saying, who do you think you are? You see, they knew who they were. If you remember, every good Israelite could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. There's tons of genealogies. If you've ever tried to do a Bible reading plan, right, you know there are genealogies. If you've ever tried to read through a Bible, every time you read through that plan, it's like Genesis is great, you're fall, this is good, and then you get and you're like, oh my God. It's like he begat who begat, he begat. And it's like three chapters of, oh my, who, I can't even pronounce the names, right? And your Bible reading plan, you're like, can I just skip? Okay, I'm going to gut through it. Like, this is brutal. There, I did it, God. I don't know who these people are. These people could, they knew who all those people were. They knew how they were related thousands of years. So they're looking at Jesus and saying, we know where we came from. Where did you come from? Who do you think you are? Listen, this is not a bad question. It's not. It's a question we should ask. It's a question that we should say, what gives you the right to think you can do this? It's a question that if we truly ask it of God, it leads us to repentance. Who do you think you are, God, that you're God? I surrender. See, it's not a bad question. The heart behind it is bad. And look at what, the, look at what Jesus' answer is. I love this. I love when Jesus, like, we always ask questions and we want a direct response, and Jesus always turned it, Right? Turned it back to the heart. He answered them. I will also ask you a question. Okay, we're playing the question game. Let's play the question game. You ever done this with your kids, right? They come, mom, dad, can I go out with so-and-so? Is your room clean? Like, wait, you didn't give me a yes or no. You gave me another question. I was looking for the, no, I'm just asking, is your room clean? And they automatically know the answer, right? Like, if I say yes, they're going to go check and I'm going to be a liar. If I say no, then they're going to tell me i got to go clean my room. So the response isn't, I'll get back to you on that question. Give me half an hour. That's never the response, right? It's always, well, mom, you don't understand. Like, I'll do it. And, it, and, it, and No. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Because when we approach authority and we get asked a question, we have to respond. Jesus responds, tell me. Was it the baptism of John, or was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Remember, John the Baptist, who was the precursor to Jesus, he was the prophesied person who would come and announce the coming of the Messiah. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist came. He got his head cut off for what he taught, because he told people to repent, and specifically he told the king to repent. Got him killed. Told Herod he needed to stop being married to the person he was married to. It was evil, he needed to repent. Herod didn't want to do it. He got his head cut off, and it got put on a platter and brought into a party. Wow, don't we want the life of John the Baptist? How wonderful. Like, that's, that's who he's talking about. And John was baptizing people for repentance. He was calling people to the wilderness and saying, will you repent? Will you say, God is God, he is the authority, you're not, and will you say, God, help me? Send your Savior, send your Messiah. And people were going out to say, that's what I want. Help me, send your saving grace into my life. And so he looks at them and he says, so let me ask you. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe it? 
See, they didn't go out and get baptized. They stood at the water's edge and watched John baptize people, but we're, we don't need to repent. We're, we're good. We're, I don't want to get my you know, heavenly, wonderful garments, religious garments dirty. So I, I, they never followed through with baptism. They, these leaders looked at John and said, hey, we're, we're happy John's calling people to repent. You want to know why? Because when they repent, they bring more money to the temple. They start actually like, God changes their life. And so, hey, we're not going to challenge John. We're not going to like throw John out because he's getting people to repent. And that works well for my pocketbook. So I, but, but I don't need to. I don't need to respond to whether John really is the precursor to the coming Messiah. I just let him do his thing. I'll do my thing. He has his truth. I have my truth. And Jesus knows that that's where they've been, and so he looks. But if we say for men, all the people will stone us because they are convinced John was a prophet. They realize at this moment they're trapped. Either John was who he says he was or he wasn't, and we don't know the answer. We can follow our lineage all the way back to Abraham, but we can't say if this guy who lived a sacrificial, calling people to repentance life was really the real deal or not. And then he says, so they answered that they did not know its origin. <laughs> I love that. This is the perfect agnostic response, right? I know that he could be a prophet, but I just don't know. And it goes on and it says, and Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, Jesus knows if you can't even come up with the fact that John and where his authority came from, there's no way if I told you my authority was from heaven, you're going to believe me. You want to know why? Remember how we skipped the first couple of chapters of Luke? I told you we'd come back to it. This is why. See, here's John the Baptist's lineage. You ready? Look. Luke 1.5. In the days of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. If he was a priest, that meant he was a Levite. That means he was of the tribe of Levi who was given the priesthood. Levi was traced back because he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Traced back to Isaac, the promised child of who? Abraham. John had the right to call people to repentance. He was a priest. He was of a priestly line. See, these guys didn't address that. They could have answered that. Well, we know John was a priest. We know that he came from Zechariah because that's what we're going to get ready to find out. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron. Whoa. So not only do you have a Levite, his wife is from Aaron. Aaron, you can't get more priest, more authority in Jewish culture than John the Baptist's parents. Doesn't exist. Holy smokes. Then he goes on and he says, look at this. Both were righteous, or her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to the commands and requirements of the Lord. Look, living without blame does not mean sinless. Living without blame means they were repentant. When they sinned, they repented. They asked forgiveness. They just, you couldn't blame them because they'd already taken the blame on themselves. Yeah, I did that. That's what blameless means. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It means you own your sin. 
Does that make sense? Because this is what people read and they go, oh, they were perfect. I could never be like them. Yeah, you can. Just repent. When you screw up, say, I'm sorry, I messed up. Please forgive me. That's what it means to be blameless. And then it says, but they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive. By the way, that was considered a curse in ancient cultures. And it said, and both of them were well along in years. Some of you might be well along in years, right? Whatever that means. I love that they don't tell us how old they are. They're just well along in years. And we're like, is that me? I mean, I feel pretty good. I don't, is that me? Anyway, then it says, when his division was on duty, in other words, each Levitical division had rights and responsibilities. They would serve for a time and then they'd get time off. So, so he's a priest, he's serving in the temple. And it says, he was serving as priest before God. It happened, it just happened. Oh, it just happened. I love how the Bible talks about that. Like, just so happened. No, it, what, it didn't just happen. This was ordained by God that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. This is a huge deal. To enter actually into the sanctuary, the holy, the, right before the holy of holies, to enter in there and to be able to perform acts was a serious authority responsibility. It was a big, big deal. And Zechariah knows it. And it goes on and it says, at the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people were praying outside. So here's Zechariah going in. He's lighting the incense. He's in there. He's praying. And everyone outside is praying. And an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome with fear. Remember, this is always the proper response when we understand authority. When we understand who we're in the presence of, there should be a trembling. The Bible says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean we try to get saved. It means we understand how we got saved. And when we come into the presence of God, there's a trembling there for him to say this. Look at what he says. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. You're good. You, you're blameless. You, you've confessed your sin because your prayer's been heard. Can you imagine? My prayer's been heard. Which prayer? I pray a lot of prayers. Like which? Am I getting the new car? Awesome. Like, is, like he goes, your prayer's been heard. He goes on and he says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. This is where John the Baptist's authority comes from from the throne room of heaven itself. Proven through the Old Testament priesthood all the way back. And it says, there will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth. The scribes and Pharisees just admitted that. Everybody loves John, we can't go against him. The people love John. There's joy with John. And it goes on, it says, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. I am going to transform this boy before he even comes out. Then it goes on and it says, look at Zechariah. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to their God and he will go before him, go before the Messiah in the sight and power of Elijah, because Elijah was to come before John, or before the Messiah, and turn the hearts of fathers to their children. Oh, that's a beautiful imagery, isn't it? 
to turn the heart of the heavenly father towards children that he's going to adopt. That's you and me. That John was leading the way to say, God wants you to be adopted. All you have to do is repent. And it says, and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready the Lord a prepared people. A people that are ready to hear the Messiah. That, that was John's role. That was the authority he was given to do. It's the authority he carried out. And that's why these guys were so scared to stand up against that authority. Then it goes on and it says, how can I know this? I love that. How? I'm an angel. Like, <laughs> how can I know you're true? Like, let's see, we're in the temple, in the holy place. I've been br- you appeared, I thought I was dead. You're speaking to me, there's a bright light. Like, I'm, how can I, oh my goodness, isn't this us? Like, how can I be sure that's what God's word said? Because God's word says it. Like, he spoke it. And then it goes on, it says, Zechariah asked the angel, here's the question, right? The two questions they were asking. For I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. I love how Zechariah doesn't call his wife old. Isn't that awesome? He's like, I'm an old guy, but my wife is well along in years. I love, like, isn't that funny? There's funny moments in the Bible. This is one of those to me, right? He doesn't say, well, I'm well along in years, and my wife, she's an old hag. That's not what he says, right? And then he goes on, and it says, the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. (laughs) I love this moment. It's like, I'm one of the most powerful beings in heaven. I'm Gabriel, the archangel, who stands in the presence of God all the time, and I kind of left for a moment to talk to you. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Like, dude, are you really questioning this? Now listen. (laughs) I love this, the angel. Now listen. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in the proper time. He's going to spend nine months silent. Listen, that would have been great for me as a husband. I said some really dumb things during pregnancy. I don't know if any of you guys have ever done that. I just, I, I said some really dumb things. The one that sticks out the most that I've said and confessed before in this congregation is, I remember my wife was so frustrated. She is not a nice pregnant person at all. She'll tell you that. She hates being pregnant. She'd have 10 kids if it was just labor and delivery. She hates being pregnant. I mean, hates it. She cannot, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle for her. She's got some issues medically that make it hard. And she was really discouraged about her weight. And she was just complaining all the time. And instead of being silent, like Zechariah, God's wisdom, I, I spoke up and said, I just wish I had my skinny wife back. Yeah, see, all of you, all of you now know it would have been great if God would have made Matt silent. At which moment, my wife looked at me and there was no question what I had done. I called my wife the old hag, unlike Zechariah, so to speak. And I said, well, that's not what I mean. I'm just tired of, you're beautiful to me, and I'm tired of your complaining. I just wish, that's not, no. Yeah, Clint Kent's back, no, that's not, no, it was awful. I had to repent, I had to ask forgiveness, and I'm still asking, like, I still, it's still a struggle to this day. Just being real with y'all, not good. So maybe it was very merciful that God silenced Zechariah. I don't know, right? But he did. Then it says, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. We're like, where, 
He was supposed to go in and like light the altar. Boom. You know, it's, it's like if you, you, he lights and then he comes out. And he's like, he lights and it's like he's, he's did he die of asphyxiation in there? Like, and it says, then they realized when he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept making signs to them <laughs> and remained speechless. Can you imagine he's coming out being like, I mean, he's so excited because he just saw an angel. And he's like, I don't know sign language. Like he's trying to communicate, and they're like, what? Is he nuts? And then it goes on. When he, the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. Even though he was silent, even though this happened, he still fulfilled his obligation under the authority he was given. And then it says, it goes on, and it says this. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. You know, when I read this the first time, I was like, that seems strange. Unless Elizabeth had had multiple miscarriages. She had tried to conceive over and over and over again, and it was just always disappointing. And here I am again, an old woman, and I got to go through this again. Are you kidding me? Maybe even doubting, like, I'm old. Is this really? Am I just not, like, do I have a tumor? I don't, I mean... She stayed in seclusion and kept to herself, and it said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. She is so, such an emotional wreck of just, that he has done this. She, she's worshiping. <laughs> she's taken this break, and she's taken the pain of the past and the present, and she's, she's taking the moment to worship her God, to give thanksgiving and prayer to him in seclusion, not going around bragging and saying, look at what God did for me. Look how awesome I am. Look at my testimony. Look what I can do for, she's just so grateful. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to be, or to a man named Joseph, the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. John the Baptist comes along, he's conceived, and just a little bit later, now Jesus is conceived by the Spirit of God. So that's John's authority, right? Remember, the question was, you tell me by what authority John did, and then I'll tell you by what authority. He just, we just saw John's authority. Jesus and Luke made sure it was clear God made clear for us that John was who he really said he was, so we need to consider where our hearts are in repentance to God. Now, where does Jesus' authority come from? Luke 2, 21. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, Jesus was born. We're going to talk about that later. We're going to celebrate a moment where we remember that in our culture coming up very soon. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, remember, on the eighth day they circumcised children. That's the way it worked in the Old Testament. That was the command God handed down. He was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. The angel told Mary to name this him, Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus' names means. You're, you're going to name your son Yahweh saves. Well, that's kind of prideful. Like, no, it's beautiful. That's what you're going to name your son because that's who he is. He is the God who saves, incarnate. They obeyed the law. They were under the authority. They named him what they said he was to be named. And when the eight days of purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him to Jerusalem. Listen, 
Joseph and Mary are following Old Testament law perfectly. They're not saying, well, that's kind of dumb. I, we don't really have to do that. We can find like a priest here. Maybe they'll do it for us on the, on, the, on the down low, a little bit cheaper, and we don't have to travel and, you know, eat out and do all that stuff. No, they're like, we got to obey what God has done. And so it says, according to purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished. They brought him to Jerusalem and presented him before the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. This is, this is where Jesus' authority comes from. It comes from angel Gabriel talking to Mary, Mary being submitted, then they're perfectly doing what God has said, and it says, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's what's stated in the law of the Lord, but they should have been offering a lamb. You see, the poor were allowed to offer two turtle doves. And isn't it interesting that they weren't able, they were so poor they couldn't offer a lamb. They didn't charge a lamb on their credit card in the temple, like the tables Jesus threw over. They didn't go and charge a lamb on their credit card to get the lamb. They said, the law says we can offer two turtle doves, which means Joseph probably had to go out and catch them. Like you'd have to go out and catch the two turtle doves and then bring those to be offered. Because Joseph and Mary were so poor. That's why Jesus is throwing over tables. My parents should have been able to offer a lamb. And they offered two turtle doves. Because God knew and had mercy for them. And they were under the authority of God's word when they did it. Oh, and by the way, you want to know why they didn't offer a lamb? Because they offered a lamb. When they put their son on the altar in the priest's hands and offered two turtle doves, they didn't know it fully, but he was the ultimate lamb of God. That's why they don't offer a lamb here. Because they are offering him when they present him before the Lord. It is he is going to die for his people. It goes on and says this about Jesus' authority. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout and looking forward to Israel's consolation and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Can I just tell you that in all these stories that you see in the beginning of Luke, there's a common theme. It's old people. Old, faithful people who have lived their lives not trying to get something but giving their lives to God and waiting for his Messiah. goes on and it says, guided by the spirit, he entered the temple complex when the priest brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under the law. Simeon took him up in his arms and praised God and said, you thought the Lion King came up with like Simba? No, 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 this happened before. This is the Simba moment. Like Simeon is like, he sees, he knows this is the promised child. He is this man is a devout, righteous man. He's looking for the Messiah. And when he sees it, he's like, I gotta go get that kid. Oh my goodness, I just wanna hold him. I oh, this is beautiful. This is the savior of the people. Goes on and he says, I love this. Now master, he starts praying. He, can you imagine the scene? He gets, he takes, he like steals the kid from the priest. And he's holding, he's like, and he starts speaking to heaven and says, now master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised. I'm ready to die. Just kill me now. 
Like this, that's the, hold up, just kill me now, Lord. Oh, yeah. This says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Yeah, you would too. Like, dude, we just came here to do the baby dedication. What the heck's going on? Like, I thought we were just going to, like, come up here and stand with, like, ten other parents and be like, yeah, and take him home. And now there's, like, a big spectacle, and we're poor people, and it's, like, kind of uncomfortable. Could you put him down and not do this? And it says, then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, indeed, Mary, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. That is not an encouragement. Like, oh, this baby, Mary, it's going to be, here you go. Good luck. It's going to be made tough. And then it says, and a sword will pierce your own soul. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. See, this is what Jesus is doing. He's in the temple revealing the hearts of people. Every person he comes in contact with that you see while he's teaching, he is going right after their heart every time. And that's what he does with us. Goes right after our heart. Right after the heart. Every time. And it's easy for us to get frustrated because it's like, well, well, I'm doing the right thing. Leave me alone. No, I don't just want the right thing. I want all of you. I want your whole heart. I want all of it. Well, I don't want to give you all of it. I just want to give you this, this part. No. We're in a relationship. I want all of you. I want you to know all of me. And it says... And a sword will pierce your soul. Can you imagine? Here's your kid back. Oh, it's gonna, he's going to be opposed, and then it's going to be like a like you're going to feel like you die. Can you imagine? In just a few days, Mary is going to be sitting at the foot of her son's cross, watching a literal sword be shoved into his side. And you don't think she's going to remember this scene? Do you remember awkward scenes in your life? Awkward moments that take you off guard. Don't you think that this is exactly what happens to Mary? That when she sees that sword ran through, the words of this prophet come into her mind and she's like, oh, Lord, if that's piercing my soul. I, I will die in his place. Let him live. Let my baby live. Take me. No, Mary, you just get your soul pierced. He gets his life pierced. It goes on and it says, there was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phenel, the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was just a widow for 84 years. Do the math. She's well over 100. This woman is in the temple praying, serving God. She's praying. She's not in there selling. This woman is She did not leave the temple complex serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. Remember what Jesus said? My house is to be what? A house of prayer. And this woman is there fasting and praying, serving her God. And it says, at that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption, the salvation, the buying back of Jerusalem. She wouldn't leave the temple complex. That means people had to come bring her food. She, she is an 
elderly woman who cannot leave the outer temple. She's like, I can't, I'll just fast. If nobody brings me food, that's fine. I'm gonna pray until I die. Versus people in the temple who were selling food so nobody'd be hungry. Two different hearts on display. Two different understandings of authority in their their life. Jump back to Luke 20. After he does this, he begins to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenant farmers. What's a tenant farmer? Does a tenant farmer own the land? No, they're just a tenant. They're just on the land. They don't own it. It's just, you take care of it for me. There's benefit. You can eat off the land. You can enjoy. You can build stuff on the, like, you're a tenant. You can be, it's fine. And then it says, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers so they might give him some of the fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat the slave and sent him away empty-handed. Okay, so the, the boss, the, the man who owns it, he sent him yet another slave. But they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. Perhaps they'll recognize his authority. Because they obviously haven't recognized mine and haven't recognized any of my slaves that have come to them. They think they own it. The original sin in the Garden of Eden was what? You can be like God. That is the same sin that we have today in our culture. A culture that says we can build our own kingdom, that that my little life is mine and nobody can tell you what to do. It's the same lie. And Jesus is telling this parable and then look what happens. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. This is the son. Let's kill him. So the inheritance will be ours. If we kill the son, then we can have it all. That's exactly what Satan wants to do. From the beginning of the fall of man, Satan has been out to destroy the heir. It's why you see the firstborn being killed in Egypt. It's why you see Herod slaughtering children when Jesus was born. Satan is out to get rid of the seed of God, the heir of God, no matter what. Jesus is laying this this parable out. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed the son. Therefore, hey guys, what will the owner of the vineyard do to these guys, (laughs) do to them? He will come and destroy those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when these religious leaders heard this, they said, no, never. See, they get it. They understand that Jesus is telling them, you keep killing the prophets. My father sent Joshua, my father sent Isaiah, my father sent Jeremiah, Zechariah, Malachi. My father kept sending you slaves, people who would surrender their hearts to him, and you kept not listening to them and killing them. And he gave you their words so that we could hear from them. And we go, I don't like what he has to say. I don't like what that is. We don't have to obey that. That's no big deal. We keep pushing it out. And Jesus is like, fine, I'll go find people that will obey me. I'll find people that I can have a relationship with. And so they recognize what he's saying. They're saying we are children of Abraham who are gonna inherit the earth and inherit Jerusalem and inherit the wealth of all the wicked people. That's who we are. And they know he just told them, no, you're not. He's gonna give it to somebody else if you don't repent. 
If you don't repent like John said, if you don't repent like God has said through the scriptures, then he's going to give it to somebody else. He's looking for someone whose heart will be yielded to him. It's not about some family lineage you're a part of. It's about your heart before God and your willingness to take blame and to say, God, I'm yours. I'm sorry. It goes on and it says, but he looked at them and said, then then what is the meaning of this scripture? Because they say, no, that'll never happen. God would never Then what's the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected, this has become the cornerstone. This is an Old Testament scripture. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And if it falls on everyone, it will grind him to powder. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for another way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Can I just tell you, these scribes and Pharisees, they're afraid too, just like Zechariah was afraid, just like, Elizabeth was afraid, just like. But their fear isn't of God. Their fear is of people. You see, and that's kind of us. Most of us, if we're really honest on a daily basis, we're way more afraid of people than we are of God. We're way more afraid of what people think than what God thinks. We're way more afraid to throw over a table once in a while or to, to weep when we're supposed to be all happy than we are to truly be before our God and say, you're God, and I want to give you praise and thanks because that's what your house, that's what someone in your house does. My house will be called a house of prayer. It gives praise to our God. And it says, if you don't accept that I am the cornerstone which all of human history has been built on, then you'll be crushed. You'll be buried under it, he says. Goes on, they watched closely, sent spies who pretended to be righteous so they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Isn't it awesome how they butter him up, right? You're just so awesome. Whenever someone comes into our church and says, man, this is the most incredible church ever. I've just been looking for all kinds of, the last six churches I've been to are nothing like this church. I immediately know like that's a problem. I don't, those people, they're gone. Like, I'm gonna say something's gonna offend them, they'll be gone in three months to six months, guaranteed, every time. If you haven't surrendered your heart and, and no church has ever been good enough for you, I promise we're not. Because <laughs> we're, we, we're not. Okay, we got all kinds of issues in this family. He goes on and he says, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And I love what they do here. They try to trap Jesus politically. Right? Because if he says, okay, yeah, give your money to Caesar, then the people are going to reject it. They're going to say, we're done with this guy because he wants us to be with Caesar. If they say the opposite, right, if they say, no, don't give any money to Caesar, then Caesar's going to kill him. So it seems like they've got a good trap for him. Why? Because this is a question they could never answer. These guys just kind of went, well, I don't know, just do what you got to do. I love what Jesus' response is. But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, hey, show me a denarius. That's a coin. It's a unit of measure. Show me me a denarius. Uh, Okay, here you go. By the way, a denarius was a large sum of money, which meant these leaders were carrying around large sums of money. Goes on, it says, whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well then, he told them, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. 
See, he looks and he says, look, money doesn't matter. It's, it's just money. It doesn't, doesn't matter. After the fall of Rome, do you know how much a denarius was worth? It was made of a precious metal like gold or silver. It was still worth something because of the gold and silver in it. But they melted it so it didn't have Caesar's inscription on it anymore because they don't want to see that. See, all of the money we have, the, the paper money that's in your wallet is a joke. Do you know how much, like, pulp wood and ink costs? Like, seriously. Oh, I got a $50 bill. That thing, like, isn't even worth a minutia. Like, you could go home and take a piece of paper and cut it the same size and paint it green and write your name on it. No one's going to take it. Why? Because you have no authority behind you. The reason money matters is because of the authority behind it. And Jesus says, look, God put Caesar in authority, and he's still in authority on his throne in heaven, and you need to live in the middle of that and honor it. And these guys couldn't stand that because they wanted to be the authority. It goes on. It says they were silent. Let me ask you. Have you ever been at a place where you were publicly humiliated like this, where you were called out, and you knew there was nothing left to say, maybe in your marriage, as a kid, at work. And you knew, like, they had you. There's only two responses you're going to have after that moment. Only two. You are either going to grow in humility, or you are going to become a bitter, bitter person. It's one of the two. You are either going to humble yourself and be blameless like we read about at Zechariah and Elizabeth. You're, you're, going, you're going to take the blame you're going, or you're going to become bitter. And this is what I see happen in church all the time is that when people are finally come face to face with what God is real, when he finally gets our hearts, when he finally digs like with these scribes and Pharisees and exposes our heart and it comes out, here's a denarius, that's a large sum of money. What are you doing carrying around money? When all of our hearts exposed publicly, you got one of two options and these guys took the option to look for any way they could to kill Jesus after this and they've been looking for a way all the time but they are, they are becoming more and more hardened more and more bitter towards the God of the universe and towards any of his servants that might call them out and towards his word. And that is our response if we're not careful. We can become silent. The question is, why are you being silent? Who did we just read about who were silent? Zechariah, why was he silent? Because God told him, you're not gonna speak. You're going to be silent before me for a little while. What was Zechariah's response? Did he get bitter, mad that he couldn't talk? No, he was excited, <laughs> praising God that he was gonna be used by God. His child was gonna mean something. But he couldn't even speak, so it was like, I don't know what his praise was like. Like, I don't know. Like, these guys are gonna get silent, and you're gonna see their silence leads them to try to kill authority, not come under it. See, when Jesus, as we wrap up, this is a passage I use often with students. When Jesus came to the pinnacle moment of his life in the temple before this moment in the temple. You know, we're looking back at temple moments with Jesus when he was eight years old. This is a temple moment. When Jesus was 12, he's taken to the temple, and that was the age you took the kids, and it was Passover, the same time as this. He goes there, and Joseph and Mary lose Jesus. I think that's hilarious. They lose the Son of God, if you've ever lost your children, that some encouragement for you. 
They lose Jesus. He stays back, and he's teaching in the temple, and the Pharisees and scribes are amazed. It says they're amazed by him. Now, a few years later, they're not amazed by him. They want him dead. But at this time, they're amazed, and they want him to come study under them. They want Jesus to place himself under their educational authority, to become a priest like them, a scribe like We want that kid. He's amazing. We want him. We want to disciple him. Look at Jesus' response. Oh, sorry. I got clicker happy. His response. Then they went down with him. Then he went down with them, that's his mom and dad, and came to Nazareth and was obedient to his parents. His mother Mary kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and people. From age 12 till age 30, that's the life of our Savior. The one who has all authority on heaven and earth. I don't know about you, but if I take a moment and actually think about that, I think that's kind of pointless in my hardened heart. But if I take time to really think about that with a softened heart, it encourages me to know that if you will place yourself under God and his authority and his love and his grace and his word, And you'll do that for longevity like Zechariah, like Elizabeth, like Simeon, like the elderly woman in the temple. God can use that amazingly. 18 years of Jesus just increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And when mom and dad said, clean his room, he said, you bet. It's already done. I knew you were going to say it. Like, just being a servant. He was offered everything. He was offered the best education. He was offered temple. And his parents, you can imagine, were like, take it. And he's like, no, I'm just going to obey you. Which is why it says Mary treasured that in her heart. That her son would say no and want to come home and learn his father's trade. And just live a simple life. Because that would have been the moment where she lost him. She would have been turning him over to them to raise him like Hannah turned over Samuel in the Old Testament to the priest Eli. And I'm sure she thought that's what was going to happen. And she probably thought about that Bible story and, oh, I'm a Hannah, going to lose my Samuel. And Jesus said, thanks for the offer. Hey, Mom and Dad, I just want to go be your son. I just want a relationship with you. I just want a relationship with people. Let me ask you, is that your heart? Are you trying so desperately to get somewhere, to get above something, to get authority in something that your heart just isn't humble? (laughs) Say, God, I'm yours. Whatever you want. If you want to raise me up, I'll go. You want to tear me down, I'll be torn. It doesn't matter. Because I want to treasure you in my heart above all else. See, that's what Jesus is preaching, and that's what gets him killed. Because none of us want that. We want a God we can manipulate. We want a God that we can come to the temple and do certain things and buy certain things and give them to God and we get this result. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. We have a God that just wants to get to know us. Jesus just wanted to get to know his mom and dad as the God of the universe. 